This is AutoLine This Week, the show that gets you inside the global automotive industry. AutoLine This Week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode. Thanks for joining us on AutoLine This Week. We're still talking about electric cars here, but from a different perspective today. As you all know, there's going to be a flood of electric cars hitting the market in the next three years. But can the grid take it? Or are we going to have sort of more brownouts and blackouts going forward? Well, get, uh, to get to an answer today, I've got two experts coming on. Ben Burns is the Director of Transportation Electrification at DTE, the big utility in southeastern Michigan. And Matteo Muratori is a senior engineer at the Center for Integrated Mobility Sciences at NREL. That's the National Renewable Energy Lab out of uh, Golden, Colorado. And thanks to both uh, to the both of you for coming on today's show. Thanks for having thanks us, John. <laughs> well, l- let me throw this out here. And, and Ben, I'll ask you first. I mean, you're with the utility. All these electric cars are coming, as you know, by 2024, which is just around the corner, there's going to be a flood of EVs hitting the marketplace. So from DTE's standpoint, can your grid take it? First, I want to say thanks for having me here today to talk about, uh, I think, one of the most exciting topics facing our country and certainly facing the, the industry today. Uh, and the simple answer is yes. Uh, John, as you think about really the core business that a utility, and this certainly is true of DT Energy, exists to do, it's, it's to provide safe and reliable power. And so one of the things that we do uh, day in, day out, month in, month out, year in, year out, is we, we have a pulse on the overall economy, the needs of our customers, be it industry, uh, commercial, or, or those residential customers. And so what we would say is this is core to exactly what we do. Uh, that being said, focus on planning for EVs has really been ongoing over the past five years. On an annual basis, uh, DTE, just as an example, we invest about a billion dollars per year to make upgrades to the grid to ensure that our customers have that safe and reliable power. Um, these investments are in places such as substations, uh, transformers in the local neighborhood to ensure that when customers plug in, they're going to have that power that they need out there. Um, we do have uh, concerns because that's sort of our, our, our job is to have a level of concern about ensuring that we meet that objective. We take it very seriously. Uh, and so we are connected with uh, folks such as Mateo, others, um, uh, other peer industries, uh, peer utilities out there. And, and our customers. And so we are constantly focusing on ensuring that, that we do meet that need. But the simple answer is yes, we, we will meet the need. Matteo, how do you see it? Hi, John. Well, thanks a lot for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, for those of you not familiar with us, the, the National Renewable Energy Lab is part of the Department of Energy Complex of National Labs. And we do research on a number of topics, including vehicle grid integration, which is something that I focus uh, a lot on. Uh, before we start, I just wanted to highlight how I'm, uh, I'm uh, not representing the US government in any official capacity today, but just sharing my expert opinion. Uh, and we have done a lot of studies at the national level, as well as in internationally in collaboration with international energy agencies and other. And we, we really see no major threat uh, from EVs uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of the grid being able uh, to support vehicle electrification. Uh, you know, the experience that DT is, is uh, putting forward is exactly what we're seeing nationally. You know, the key word we think is planning and make sure that we know what to expect and when to expect it and, and the grid can evolve in line with EV adoption. Uh, and we are actually seeing a lot 
of opportunities for EVs to support the grid, not, not actually being a burden for the system, but helping the transformation of the power se sector that, that, is, uh, uh, that is also changing very rapidly. That, that's a great point. I want to get into that later in the discussion. But what I'd also like to figure out now is uh, how do you guys see EV adoption? Some people think it's right around the corner and everything's going to go EV and no more internal combustion engines. Others are like, meh, you know, EVs, they'll take decades to be adopted. But Ben, I'll turn to you on this. I mean, uh, as Mateo said, you know, as long as you have your planning in place, you can be ready. But how do you plan for this? Were so many estimations about the take rate for EVs coming up? I think that's a great question. And I think the way that we look at it at DTE is we break it down by the segment, right? So John is, you know, today we're talking, uh, probably thinking primarily about the light duty segment. So those passenger vehicles that are out there. However, uh, when we break this down, we look at really five segments out there, right? You've got the light duty and that is the largest, right? Largest number of vehicles. It will be the largest impact in terms of uh, electric load as well. However, you also have mass transit buses out there, right? So these are your public city buses you see driving uh, nationwide. In Southeast Michigan, we have about 750 of those just in our service territory. You also have what we would consider the fleet vehicles, right? So these are your class four to eight last mile delivery vehicles, um, Amazon delivery trucks ranging up to, you know, the larger heavy duty trucks in that space. You have school buses, right? So your yellow bus, which, you know, will be increasingly electric. And then you also have the airports and ports, right? That's a segment that people don't think a lot about. And so the dynamics that we see really driving adoption, they differ by segment, right? When you think of those commercial uses, um, those customers are going to make the conversion when they see an opportunity to save in your cost savings. Um, so when they're high mileage, right, like a mass transit bus or a fleet vehicle, they are converting now. They want to convert right now. And so if you're operating a mass transit bus and you're putting, say, 40,000 or, or more miles per year on that bus, you can you can see a cost savings today. Right. At the battery prices today, you can achieve a cost savings. If you are operating a fleet vehicle, uh, Ford and some of the other OEMs are going to be bringing on vehicles in the next couple of years here. Based on, you know, if you're operating, say, 30,000, 35,000 miles a year, which there are many trucks and vehicles that are operating that number out there. So I think what we would say is that um, we see a positive use case in uh, the mass transit buses, refuse vehicles, and those fleet vehicles today, right? They are high mileage vehicles. And so we expect to see strong adoption in those segments uh, now and then on a going forward basis. The light duty vehicles, again, as, as Americans, you know, as we start moving past COVID and as we get back to offices and back to putting miles on the vehicles, people are going to see an opportunity for them to either achieve savings or relatively speaking, be, you know, somewhat at parity with, with the um, ICE equivalent. So, you know, we can't be predictive of exactly what it's going to look like, but ultimately, you know, cost is, is a major driver in any person's purchasing decision. And, and we see the, the battery price continuing to come down over the next three to five years, which we think should drive, drive significant adoption. Okay, Mateo, two questions for you. What do you think? Uh, how, how does NREL see the adoption rate of EVs going, say, over the next decade? And then secondly, go back to what you were talking about before, about how EVs can actually help the grid, not just be a burden on it. 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's always hard to predict the future, right? So, so we, we, don't, we don't have a crystal ball, but we have developed over the years a number of very detailed models and tools to try and understand how technologies can be adopted. And we have used those to try and, and understand how EVs can be successful. So I think Ben made really excellent points across different segments and applications. And in terms of cost, we do see cost of batteries dropping very rapidly and cost parity either, either already being achieved or coming over the next decade. Uh, one point that I wanted to, to add in terms of light duty vehicles, you know, cost is not the only driver uh, of vehicle adoption, especially for, for uh, personal usage. Uh, but what we see is that EVs can actually provide added convenience compared to a conventional vehicle, right? Now you can recharge at home while you're sleeping. You never have to go to a gasoline station. You never have to go for an oil change, you know, provided that there is a network of fast charging uh, available and reliable throughout the country you can do the long distance trip very similarly to what we are used to today. So, so we, we really think that on top of cost is providing that convenience for consumer that's going to be key for, for EVs to take off and, and, um, and, and really uh, dominate the, the light duty vehicle market. Uh, before moving on, we, we do a lot of these detailed studies and we make a lot of the data available. As we said, you know, as a national lab, we try to inform uh, you know, industry, decision makers, and the general public. And so one study that we did recently is called the Electrification Futures Study, EFS. And if you just Google NREL EFS, you can find all data associated with that. It's all publicly available, a number of reports, and a number of information at the state level that people can, can, can download and look at and, and see for themselves what we, what we think a, a possible future scenario for EV adoption could look like. Um, in terms of the integration with the grid, I think, John, a key aspect that we talk a lot about is how our EV is going to impact the grid. And I think one element that, that sometimes get not highlighted enough is that EVs offers a tremendous opportunity for growing the load, but this load is gonna also be really flexible. Uh, flexibility in the future power system would be, be key. You know, as we adopt more and more renewables, which are not dispatchable, so we cannot decide when the sun is shining or when the wind is blowing, having a flexible load that complements those, uh, those uh, sources of power is going to be extremely valuable for the, for the overall system at all levels. So generation, transmission, the distribution level, we really think that, that the flexible load coming from EV can help tremendously in integrating renewables in an effective and affordable way. So, so great synergies there between those two technologies. And we think that both technologies have really good prospects for high adoption in the next decades. That's great. You know, Ben, when I talk to people, you know, that are not in the industry and all maybe don't follow it as closely, two questions always come up. What about at my neighborhood level? Okay, so the electric utilities can generate all kinds of electricity, but, you know, my neighborhood feeds into one transformer. What if we all buy electric cars? And then the second thing that always comes up, maybe this is first, actually, what about those hot summer nights when everybody's turning on their air conditioning? And we have brownouts in, in some areas. Uh, uh, what happens when everybody plugs in their EV? That's a great question. And I think that gets exactly uh, back, back to the point I was, I was making for, for the initial part of the conversation. Uh, planning and operating the grid is core to what we do, right? DTE Energy has been here for over 100 years, ensuring that we meet the needs of those customers out there. And so part of our electric distribution businesses annual planning process is to be taking a look at 
down at the circuit and the transformer level all the way throughout the grid for our 2.1 million customers to ensure that we are meeting those needs. So the question, John, is exactly right. What if we have five people on my, you know, five homes on my transformer who all adopt an electric vehicle? And DTE says that is great, right? Because the EVs are the proverbial win, 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 right? It's a win for the environment. It's a win for our customers, right? EV adoption helps rate affordability. It helps us to keep those bills low for our customers. It helps us to keep those bills low for our commercial customers and for our industrial customers, which makes Michigan a more attractive place mm-hmm. here. So what I would say is this is all part of our annual planning process. Um, it is extremely circuit and location dependent on what that will you know, mean, mean right there. But what DT is committed to doing is ensuring that we, we continue to analyze that on that annual basis and ensure that no customers are going to have an issue. The one thing I would say is a, is a slight addition to what Mateo said, because I thought his comments were terrific, is that ultimately uh, part of the benefit to the customers is that uh, this allows DTE to provide even more affordable energy to customers out there. What we see today, uh, based on the investments we've made, is that 80% of residential customers in those light duty vehicles are going to be charging at home, right? So they're going to be charging um, in, in a charger that they put in their home. And what they're able to do is use a time of use rate, which basically says you have an incentive for, as Mateo was saying, charging off peak hours. And so what that allows DTE to do is ensure that we are most effectively uh, utilizing the energy that we are pushing through the grid. And then the customer is, is charging at a time when there is lower overall demand, which I think, John, gets back to your second question. What happens on those days during the summer? Well, the time of use rates are able are, are what help us to ensure that uh, we're meeting the air conditioning needs during the daytime, and then we're charging those automobiles uh, o- overnight when, when when there's not quite the same demand. Uh, Mateo, right now, electricity is pretty cheap, cheaper than gasoline, certainly. You know, where I live, I pay about 19 cents per kilowatt hour. That's all in. That's taxes, transfer fees, everything. Uh, but, you know, when we look at the grid as it stands right now, it definitely needs to be hardened more from a cyber attack standpoint. It needs to get greener, too. All I see is electric rates going up in the future. Is that how you see it? Well, we're not necessarily into the business of, of, of projecting the retail cost of electricity, but, but in our studies, we, we do not see that happening. Uh, what we're seeing is technology cost for generating power dropping uh, year over year. So solar is getting cheaper and cheaper. Wind turbines are getting cheaper and cheaper. And so, so generating that electricity becomes cheaper over time. Uh, at, at the same time, you know, with load growing and with this flexible load that can help synergistically integrate those resources, we really see opportunities to actually reduce power cost over time. So, so as, you, as you said, electricity is already pretty cheap and we don't see major, uh, major trends leading to increase in cost of electricity or major increase in cost of electricity over time. Uh, cybersecurity, however, I, I think it's a, it's a very important topic and something that we shouldn't disregard. You know, the grid is still mostly uh, uh, analogic today. You know, it doesn't really digitalized, if if you will, over time. And that's that's happening, and it's happening rapidly. And it's happening, you know, for a number of reasons, you know, including electric vehicles, but not, not necessarily dictated by electric vehicles. And we think that the future digital grid will need to be safe and reliable, and so cybersecurity will become more and more important. 
There are a number of national labs, including NREL and others, who are focusing on this. But I think that would be one one of the challenges one of the challenges of the next decades to ensure that the grid is safe from a cyber perspective. Uh, so, so surely a lot of work to be done there in collaboration with, with our friends in the utility world, because at the end they, they are operating the grid, and we want to make sure that the the system works uh, reliably for all Americans. Ben, you see that uh, you know uh, the the cost of making electricity going down. I, 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 dare I ask, is my bill going to go down? You know that is something which, if you think about uh, safe and reliable and affordable power, those are the three things that we exist to do. Uh, those are the three things that we spend every single day focused on at DT Energy, and I think most of the uh, most of our peers in the sector are focused on as well, because that's ultimately what our customers expect from us. Um, I would I would not be positioned well today to comment on exactly what the future looks like, uh, but I think that broadly speaking, what Mateo said, you know, as more renewables come online, you're able to see that what we call that levelized cost of energy continue to come down, which has the benefit to all of our customers out there. Um, and so, I mean, as we said, we see EVs as really just a nearly universally positive, like I said, that proverbial win-win-win um, for, for the various stakeholders who are out there. Yeah. Uh, and your thoughts on having to uh, protect the grid from uh, cyber attack? I think that's a big concern. It's one which um, we we certainly, uh, as, as circumstances have evolved in, in some of those uh, issues out on the West Coast, I think that PG&E had over the last couple of years. I know the DTE has certainly um, stepped up our approach and focus on on, on this to ensure we're you know meeting and exceeding the expectations to ensure that we're we're protecting our customers um, because ultimately as we said I mean that's that's really what we stand and, and serve to do. And you both mentioned renewables, Ben. I'll, I'll ask you this: uh, How good, from a competitive standpoint, is solar and wind getting with you know more traditional fossil fuel-based ways of generating electricity? Well, that's a great question, John. And I think the simple answer is in twenty in 2019, our CEO uh, announced that NDT was one of maybe the first five or six nationwide utilities to do this. We announced a 2050 uh, carbon net zero objective, right? To say by 2050, DT will uh, emit, emit zero. We today have, I think, a 90, maybe a 95% path to get there. So as with anybody, you know, if you if you set the objective and you know exactly how you're getting there, you probably set the objective too low. So we still do have some work to do. But I think what we recognize is that um, we can bring on additional renewables at an affordable cost to our customers, as well as uh, do, do so in a way that does not emit. Um, so we really look forward to doing that. The governor in the state of Michigan, where, where we operate, um, she set an objective for the state of a 2050 net zero goal. And so we are very focused on um, certainly hitting 2050. And, you know, if anything, you know, we would love to obviously do that even even ahead of that timing. And Matteo, you look at this on a national basis. Uh, what do you see? Cost of renewables versus traditional methods? Yeah, it's it's a good conversation because I think Ben and I are 100% in agreement on every every single question today. Uh, so 
what he said is happening at the national level as well. You know, President Biden has announced a commitment for the U.S. to be net zero emissions by 2050, economy-wide. And one of the big, big ways of achieving that is decarbonizing our grid. And that needs to happen even faster. And so, so we are targeting having a net zero carbon grid by 2035, which, which is only 14 years uh, away. So that's a big driver for, for renewable adoption, right? We need clean sources of electricity. But when I look at it from a cost perspective, again, the cost of those technology has been dropping dramatically over the past decades. You know, a lot of R&D, a lot of research, you know, NREL was actually funded, you know, decades ago to, to, uh, as, as a research lab to focus on, on solar energy. And, you know, we went a very long way uh, from, from, uh, from the late uh, 1900s where, where, uh, where uh, solar was very expensive to today, where, where it's already the cheapest alternative to produce electricity in most cases. So, so we, we have a very, very positive outlook on, on renewables, uh, including the cost perspective. Matteo, one of the other things that's been talked about, and, and there's been some experimentation, is electrifying roadways. So instead of plugging in the battery and taking a big charge, you pick up electricity as you drive down the road. Is that at all realistic in your view? So that's uh, wireless charging. Uh, it, it's it's a technology that we, we have been working on for a number of years and a number of, of institutes have been working on for a number of years. Uh, I, I think, you know, as with any technology is that, that that's being developed, it's not commercially available today. I don't see us starting to to deploy highways with, with uh, in-road charging tomorrow. Like I I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But there are applications that are starting to emerge. Uh, for example, charging of buses at bus stops or, or charging of delivery van in, in in certain applications. We have a wireless charging station for a bus that we use here on our campus. For example, it's really convenient. You just drive on top of this platform and the, and the vehicle gets recharged. So I think that over time, as the technology improves and the costs drop, I can see those applications starting to roll out, you know, bus stops, specific application. I, I don't really see in the United States electrifying all our highway system. You know, they, the, the U.S. is a very large country uh, with all, all in all a lot of traffic in cities, but they're not, not a lot of traffic along highways. So, so that doesn't seem like a great solution, uh, you know, for, for, uh, for highway charging in in my perspective. Yeah, Ben, what about inductive charging? Because, you know, what Matteo's talking about here is, is kind of interesting. You come to a bus stop and maybe inductively the bus charges for, you know, a, a little bit. And that's one of the concepts that are out there with wireless or inductive charging is you sip a little of a bit of electricity. You, you go to the store, you run in, you do some stuff and your car is getting charged. So instead of guzzling all at once, right. hours on time, you sip a little bit. Does, is that anything that you're hearing about? It, it, it is. And I think Mateo said it well. It really is segment dependent, right? Uh, as, you're, as you're looking at that light duty, your, uh, your, your standard passenger vehicles, they're going to be fine using a, a high voltage uh, DCFC charger pulling over for 10 or 15 minutes and probably guzzling, as you would put it, John. Um, the use case you called out correctly is those mass transit buses, potentially fleet vehicles, refuse trucks, uh, the, the, the vehicles who have really high need for uptime, really high need for driving and moving along the road and not wanting to sort of move out of their out of their schedule. And so there are pilots uh, across the, the world. I know of some in Israel as well as Norway. I'm sure Mateo knows of many more than that. And we're looking at some potential pilot opportunities here in southeast Michigan where we would uh, put those in place. That being said, um, 
I think Mateo said it well. I don't see this as something which is going to be widespread simply because I'm not sure that there's really the, the need or the demand for it. Okay, uh, last topic, I think, uh, Mateo. Uh, I, I think you alluded to this earlier of how EVs can help the grid, not just by balancing out you know, day and, day and night loads, but potentially even feeding electricity into the grid. Maybe you run your house off on uh, your car battery at high demand loads where prices are higher and recharge the battery when prices are lower. Is the, I, There's been a lot of talk about that. Is this really on the way? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting topic, uh, John. I, I think it's important to put things in context. When we think about light duty vehicles, you know, 99% of trips are shorter than, than 100 miles. Uh, and so, you know, for most of our trips, we don't need the long range that EVs offer today. You know, people talk about two, 300 mile range now as being low and new, new, new models coming at 400 or 500 miles. You know, maybe we need that once a year or so, or maybe twice a year, but on a regular basis, we don't. And so it's a, it's a big underutilized asset that can be leveraged to provide services. And so what you're describing is what we, in jargon, we call V2G, vehicle to grid. So you are exporting power out of your vehicle and into the grid. Um, three, three considerations on that. I think the biggest obstacle for V2G today is actually uh, from the vehicle perspective. So uh, uh, automotive manufacturers avoid vehicle warranties if you use your battery for anything other than driving the vehicle. And so that's somewhat of a deal breaker, right? I'm not gonna give up a warranty on a very expensive uh, piece of equipment to provide power back to the grid. And so so that, that's perhaps the biggest hurdle uh, that, that V2G needs to, needs to overcome. And it's not a technical one, right? It's, it's a matter of business model. Uh, from a technical perspective, I think V2G is attractive from, from two different uh, levels from a power system. One is for the power system in aggregate. So let's see a heat wave hits California and there is a shortage of power or, or any other sort of extreme situation. Well, if you can have this additional source of power that can be injected into the grid, that's gonna help the entire system. And so so that, that can be very attractive and very beneficial. So, so, so that's, that's a significant value. The other layer is at the customer level, you know, something happens to your distribution transformer and you disconnect from the grid for whatever reason, maybe, maybe simply a tree fell on, fell on the transmission line or a, on the distribution line and, and your refrigerator goes off, your Wi-Fi goes off, you can't work from home like we do uh, nowadays. If you have a vehicle available in your garage that can ju just power your house for a, for a day, that would be a major service, a major benefit for a consumer. So, so vehicle to buildings and, and providing that local reliability. It's a, basically distributed energy resources uh, scattered throughout the country at every consumer level. So, so I think both of those options are really attractive, both from the system level and the consumer level. Uh, and, and business models still need to be developed, however, to enable it and to make sure that V2G can be used in, in today's power markets. Real good. I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap it up with that. Uh, ben Burns, Director of Transportation Electrification at DTE. Matteo Muratori, Senior Engineer for the Center of Integrated Mobility Services at Enrol. Thank you very much for your insights. I much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me, John. AutoLine This Week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode.